You are listening to Masterpieces of Mystery, Riddle Stories. This audiobook is brought to you by Kriti and is narrated by Neha Toshniwal. Story number 8 My Fascinating Friend by William Archer Nature has cursed me with a retiring disposition. I have gone around the world without making a single friend, by the way. Coming out of my own shell is as difficult to me as drawing others out of theirs. There are some men who go through life extracting the substance of everyone they meet, as one picks out periwinkles with a pin. To me, my fellow men are oysters, and I have no oyster knife. My sole consolation if it be one, is that my own values absolutely defy the oyster knives of others. Not more than twice or thrice in my life have I met a fellow creature at whose open sesame the treasures of my heart and brain stood instantly revealed. My fascinating friend was one of these rare and sympathetic beings. I was lounging away a few days at Monaco awaiting a summons to join some relations in Italy. One afternoon, I had started for an aimless and rambling climb among the olive terraces on the lower slopes of the Tate du Chien, finding an exquisite coin of vantage amid the roots of a gnarled old trunk springing from a built-up semicircular patch of level ground. I sat me down to rest and read and dream. Below me, a little to the right, Monaco jutted out into the purple sea. I could distinguish carriages and pedestrians coming and going on the chaussee between the promontory and Monte Carlo, but I was far too high for any sound to reach me. Away to the left, the coast took a magnificent sweep, past the clustering houses of Rocca Bruna, past the mountains at whose base Mentone nestled unseen, past the Italian frontier, past the bight of Ventimiglia, to where the Capo di Bordighera stood faintly outlined between sea and sky. There was not a solitary sail on the whole expanse of the Mediterranean, a line of white curving at rhythmic intervals along a small patch of sandy beach showed that there was a gentle swell upon the sea, but its surface was mirror-like. A lovelier scene there is not in the world and it was at its very loveliest. I took the Saturday Review from my pocket and was soon immersed in an article on the commutation of tides. I was aroused from my absorption by the rattle of a small stone hopping down the steep track, half path, half stairway, by which I had ascended. It had been loosened by the foot of a descending wayfarer in whom, as he picked his way slowly downward, I recognized a middle-aged German, that I supposed to be his nationality, who had been very assiduous at the roulette tables of the casino for some days past. There was nothing remarkable in his appearance. His spectacled eyes, squat nose, and square cropped bristling beard being simply characteristic of his class and country. He did not notice me as he went by, being too intent on his footing to look about him but I was so placed that it was a minute or more before he passed out of sight round a bend in the path. He was just turning the corner and my eyes were still fixed on him when I was conscious of another figure within my field of vision. 
This second comer had descended the same pathway but had loosened no stones on his passage. He trod with such exquisite lightness and agility that he had passed close by me without my being aware of his presence, while he, for his part, had his eyes fixed with a curious intensity on the thick-set figure of the German, upon whom, at his rate of progress, he must have been gaining rapidly. A glance showed me that he was a young man of slender figure, dressed in a suit of dark-coloured tweed, of English cut, and wearing a light brown wide-awake hat. Just as my eye fell upon him, he put his hand into the inner breast pocket of his coat and drew from it something which, as he was now well past me, I could not see. At the same moment, some small object, probably jerked out of his pocket by mistake, fell almost noiselessly on the path at his feet. In his apparently eager haste, he did not notice his loss, but was gliding onward, leaving what I took to be his purse lying on the path. It was clearly my duty to call his attention to it, so I said, Hi! An interjection which I have found serves its purpose in all countries. He gave a perceptible start and looked around me over his shoulder. I pointed to the object he had dropped and said, Voila! He had thrust back into his pocket the thing, whatever it was, which he held in his hand and now turned round to look where I was pointing. Ah, he said in English, my secret case. I am much obliged to you. And he stooped and picked it up. I thought it was your purse, I said. I would rather have lost my purse than this, he said with a light laugh. He had apparently abandoned his intention of overtaking the German, who had meanwhile passed out of sight. Are you such an enthusiastic smoker? I asked. I go in for quality, not quantity, he replied. And a Spanish friend has just given me some incomparable cigarettos. He opened the case as he ascended the few steps, which brought him up to my little plateau. Have one, he said, holding it out to me with the most winning smile I have ever seen on any human face. I was about to take one from the left-hand side of the case when he turned it away and presented the other side to me. No, no, he said. These flat ones are my common brand. The round ones are the gems. I'm robbing you, I said as I took one. Not if you are a smoker enough to appreciate it, he said, as he stretched himself on the ground beside me and produced from a little gold matchbox a wax vester with which he lighted my cigarette and his own. So graceful was his whole personality, so easy and charming his manner, that it did not strike me as in the least odd that he should thus make friends with me by the mere exchange of half a dozen words. I looked at him as he lay resting on his elbows and smoking lazily. He had thrown his hat off and his wavy hair, longish and of an opaque charcoal black, fell over his temples while he shook it back behind his ears. He was a little above the middle height, of dark complexion with large and soft black eyes and arched eyebrows, a small and rather broad nose, the worst feature in his face, full curving and sensitive lips and a very strong and rounded chin. He was absolutely beardless but a slight black 
down on the upper lip announced a coming moustache. His age could not have been more than twenty. The cut of his clothes, as I have said, was English, but his large black satin neckcloth, flowing out over the collar of his coat, was such as no home-keeping Englishman would ever have dared to appear in. This detail, combined with his accent, perfectly pure but a trifle precise and deliberate, led me to take him for an Englishman brought up on the continent, probably in Italy, for there was no French intonation in his speech. His voice was rich but deep, a light baritone. He took up my Saturday review. The Bible of the Englishman abroad, he said, one of the institutions that makes me proud of our country. I have it sent me every week, I said. So had my father, he replied. He used to say, Shakespeare we share with the Americans, but damn it, the Saturday Review is all our own. He was one of the old school, my father. And the good school, I said with enthusiasm. So am I. Now I'm a bit of a radical, my new friend rejoined looking up with a smile which made the confession charming rather than objectionable, and from his point we started upon a discussion, every word of which I could write down if I chose. Such a lasting impression did it make upon me. He was indeed a brilliant talker, having read much and travelled enormously for one so young. I think I have lived in every country in Europe, he said, except Russia. Somehow it has never interested me. I found that he was a Cambridge man, or at least was intimately acquainted with Cambridge life, thought, and this was another bond between us. His radicalism was not very formidable. It amounted to little more, indeed, than a turn for humorous paradox. Our discussion reminded me of Fuller's description of the wit combats between Ben Johnson and Shakespeare at the Mermaid. I was the Spanish galleon, my fascinating friend was the English man of war, ready to take advantage of all winds by the quickness of his wit and invention. An hour spread away delightfully, the only thing I did not greatly enjoy being the cigarette, which seemed to me no better than many I had smoked before. What do you think of my cigarettes? he said, as I threw away the stump. I felt that a blunt expression of opinion would be in bad taste after his generosity in offering an utter stranger the best he had. Exquisite, I answered. I thought you would say so, he replied gravely. Have another. Let me try one of your common ones, I said. No, you shan't, he replied, closing the case with a sudden snap which endangered my fingers, but softening the brusquerie of the proceeding by one of his enthralling smiles. Then he added, using one of the odd idioms which gave his speech a peculiar piquancy. I don't palm off upon my friends what I have of second best. He reopened the case and held it out to me. To have refused would have been to confess that I did not appreciate his gems as he called them. I smoked another, in which I still failed to find an unusual fragrance but the aroma of my new-found friend's whole personality was so keen and subtle that it may have deadened my nerves to any more material sensation. We lay talking until the pink flush of evening spread along the horizon, and in it Corsica, 
invisible before, seemed to body itself forth from nothingness like an island of phantom peaks and headlands. Then we rose, and in the quickly gathering dusk, took our way down among the olive yards and through the orange gardens to Monte Carlo. My acquaintance with my fascinating friend lasted little more than 48 hours, but during that time we were inseparable. He was not at my hotel, but on that first evening I persuaded him to dine with me, and soon after breakfast on the following morning I went in search of him. I was at the Rassi, he at the Hotel de Paris. I found him smoking in the veranda, and at a table not far distant sat the German of the previous afternoon, finishing a tolerably copious déjeuner la fourche. As soon as he had scraped his plate quite clean and finished the last dregs of his bottle of wine, he rose and took his way to the casino. After a few minutes' talk with my fascinating friend, I suggested a stroll over to Monaco. He agreed, and we spent the whole day together loitering and lounging, talking and dreaming. We went to the casino in the afternoon to hear the concert, and I discovered my friend to be a cultivated musician. Then we strolled into the gambling room for an hour, but neither of us played. The German was busy at one of the roulette tables and seemed to be winning considerably. That evening, I dined with my friend at the table de hote of his hotel. At the other end of the table, I could see the German sitting silently and unnoticing, wrapped in the joys of deglutition. Next morning, by arrangement, my friend called upon me at my hotel, and over one of his cigarettes to which I was getting accustomed, we discussed our plan for the day. I suggested a wider flight than yesterday's. Had he ever been to Eza, the old Saracen robber nest, perched on a rock a thousand feet above the sea, halfway between Monaco and Villa Franca? No, he had not been there, and after some consideration he agreed to accompany me. We went by rail to the little station on the seashore and then attacked the arduous ascent. The day was perfect, though rather too warm for climbing, and we had frequent rests among the olive trees with delightfully discursive talks on all things under the sun. My companion's charm grew upon me moment by moment. There was in his manner a sort of refined coquetry of amiability which I found irresistible. It was combined with a frankness of sympathy and interest, subtly flattering to a man of my unsocial habit of mind. I was conscious every now and then that he was drawing me out, but to be drawn out so gently and genially was to me a novel and delightful experience. It produced in me one of those effusions of communicativeness to which, I am told, all reticent people are occasionally subject. I have myself given way to them some three or four times in my life and found myself pouring forth to perfect strangers such intimate details of feeling and experience as I would rather die than impart to my dearest friend. Three or four times, I say, have I found myself suddenly and inexplicably brought within the influence of some invisible truth-compelling talisman which drew from me confessions the rack could not have extorted. But never has the influence been so irresistible as in the case of my fascinating friend. I told him what I had told to no other human soul, 
what I had told, to the lonely glacier, to the lurid storm cloud, to the seething sea, but had never breathed in mortal ear. I told him the tragedy of my life. How well I remember the scene. We were resting beneath the chestnut trees that shadow a stretch of the level sward, immediately below the last short stage of ascent that leads into the heart of the squalid village now nestling in the crevices of the old Muslim fastness. The midday hush was on sea and sky. Far out on the horizon, a level line of smoke showed where an unseen steamer was crawling along under the edge of the sapphire sphere. As I reached the climax of my tale, an old woman, bent almost double beneath a huge faggot of firewood, passed us on her way to the village. I remember that it crossed my mind to wonder whether there was any capacity in the nature of such as she for suffering at all, comparable to that which I was describing. My companion's sympathy was subtle and soothing. There was, in my tale, an element of the grotesque which might have tempted a vulgar nature to flippancy. No smile crossed my companion's lips. He turned away his head on pretense of watching the receding figure of the old peasant woman. When he looked at me again, his deep, dark eyes were suffused with a moisture which enhanced the mystery of their tenderness. In that moment, I felt, as I had never felt before, what it is to find a friend. We returned to Monte Carlo late in the afternoon, and I found a telegram at my hotel begging me to be in Genoa the following morning. I had barely time to bundle my traps together and swallow a hasty meal before my train was due. I scrawled a note to my newfound confidant, expressing most sincerely my sorrow at parting from him so soon and so suddenly, and my hope that ere long we should meet again. The train was already at the platform when I reached the station. There were one or two first-class through carriages on it, which for a French railway were unusually empty. In one of them I saw at the window the head of the German, and from a certain subdued radiance in his expression, I judged that he must be carrying off a considerable pile from the gaming table. His personality was not of the most attractive, and there was something in his quart nose suggestive of stertorous possibilities which, under ordinary circumstances, would have held me aloof from him. But shall I confess it? He had for me a certain sentimental attraction because he was associated in my mind with that first meeting with my 48 hours friend. I looked into his compartment. An overcoat and valise lay in the opposite corner from his, showing that seat to be engaged but two corners were still left me to choose from. I installed myself in one of them, face to face with the valise and overcoat, and awaited the signal to start. The cry of envoiter messieurs soon came and a lithe figure sprang into the carriage. It was my fascinating friend. For a single moment, I thought that a flash of annoyance crossed his features on finding me there, but the impression vanished at once, for his greeting was as full of cordiality as of surprise. We soon exchanged explanations. He, like myself, had been called away by telegram not to Genoa, but to Rome, 
He, like myself, had left a note expressing his heartfelt regret at our sudden separation. As we sped along, skirting bays that shone burnished in the evening light and rumbling every now and then through a tunnel-pierced promontory, we resumed the almost affectionate converse interrupted only an hour before, and I found him a more delightful companion than ever. His exquisitely playful fantasy seemed to be acting at high pressure, as in the case of a man who is talking to pass the time under the stimulus of a delightful anticipation. I suspected that he was hurrying to some peculiarly agreeable rendezvous in Rome, and I hinted my suspicion, which he laughed off in such a way as to confirm it. The German, in the meantime, sat stolid and unmoved, making some penciled calculations in a little pocket book. He clearly did not understand English. As we approached Ventimiglia, my friend rose, took down his valise from the rack, and turning his back to me, made some changes in its arrangement, which I, of course, did not see. He then locked it carefully and kept it beside him. At Ventimiglia, we had all to turn out to undergo the inspection of the Italian Dogana. My friend's valise was a sole luggage, and I noticed rather to my surprise that he gave the custom house official a very large bribe, two or three gold pieces, to make his inspection of it purely nominal and forego the opening of either of the inside compartments. The German, on the other hand, had a small portmanteau and a large dispatch box, both of which he opened with a certain ostentation, and I observed that the official's eyes glittered under his raised eyebrows as he looked into the contents of the dispatch box. On returning to the train, we all three resumed our old places, and the German drew the shade of a sleeping cap over his eyes and settled himself down for the night. It was now quite dark, but the moon was shining. Have you a large supply of the gems in your valise? I asked, smiling, curious to know his reason for a subterfuge which accorded ill with his ordinary straightforwardness and remembering that tobacco is absolutely prohibited at the Italian frontier. Unfortunately, no, he said. My gems are all gone and I have only my common cigarettes remaining. Will you try them, such as they are? and he held out his case, both sides of which were now filled with the flat cigarettes. We each took one and lighted it, but he began giving me an account of a meeting he had with Lord Beaconsfield, which he detailed so fully and with so much enthusiasm that, after a whiff of two, he allowed a cigarette to go out. I could not understand his taste in tobacco, these cigarettes, which he despised, seemed to me at once more delicate and more peculiar than the others. They had a flavour which was quite unknown to me. I was much interested in his vivid account of the personality of that great man whom I admired then, while he was yet with us, and whom, as a knight of the Primrose League, I now revere, but our climb of the morning and the scrambling departure of the afternoon were beginning to tell on me and I became irresistibly drowsy. Gradually, and in spite of myself, my eyes closed. I could still hear my companion's voice mingling with the heavy breathing of the German, who had been asleep for some time, but soon even these sounds ceased to penetrate the mist of languor 
The end of my cigarette dropped from between my fingers and I knew no more. My awakening was slow and spasmodic. There was a clearly perceptible interval, probably several minutes between the first stirrings of consciousness and the full clarification of my faculties. I began to be aware of the rumble and oscillation of the train without realizing what was meant. Then I opened my eyes and blinked at the lamp and vaguely noted the yellow oil washing to and fro in the bowl. Then the white square of the Avis Ox Voyazuas caught my eye in the gloom under the luggage rack and beneath it, on the seat, I saw the lights reflected from the lock of the German spot manteau. Next I was conscious of the German himself still sleeping in his corner, but no longer puffing and grunting as when I had fallen asleep. Then I raised my head, looked round the carriage and the next moment sprang bolt upright in dismay. Where was my fascinating friend? Gone, vanished. There was not a trace of him. His valise, his greatcoat, all had disappeared. Only in the little cigar ash box on the window frame, I saw the flat cigarette which he had barely lighted. How long before? I looked at my watch. It must have been about an hour and a half ago. By this time, I had all my faculties about me. I looked across at the German, intending to ask him if he knew anything of our late travelling companion. Then I noticed that his head had fallen forward in such a way that it seemed to me suffocation must be imminent. I approached him and put down my head to look into his face. As I did so, I saw a roundish black object on the oilcloth floor, not far from the toe of his boot. The lamplight was reflected at a single point from its convex surface. I put down my hand and touched it. It was liquid. I looked at my fingers. They were not black, but red. I think, but I'm not sure, that I screamed aloud. I shrank to the other end of the carriage, and it was some moments before I had sufficient presence of mind to look for a means of communicating with the guard. Of course, there was none. I was alone for an indefinite time with a dead man. But was he dead? I had little doubt from the way his head hung that his throat was cut and a horrible fascination drew me to his side to examine. No, there was no sign of the hideous fissure I expected to find beneath the grey bristles of his beard. His head fell forward again into the same position and I saw with horror that I had left two bloody finger marks upon the grey shade of his sleeping cap. Then I noticed for the first time that the window he was facing stood open, for a gust of wind came through it and blew back the lapel of his coat. What was that on his waistcoat? I tore the coat back and examined. It was a small triangular hole just over the heart, and round it there was a dark circle about the size of a shilling, where the blood had soaked through the light material. In examining it, I did what the murderer had not done, disturbed the equilibrium of the body which fell over against me. At that moment I heard a loud voice behind me, coming from I knew not where. I nearly fainted with terror. The train was still going at full speed. The compartment was empty, save for myself and the ghastly object which lay in my arms, and yet I seemed to hear a voice almost at my ear. There it was again. 
I summoned up courage to look around. It was the guard of the train, clinging on outside the window and demanding, Big Leity! By this time, he too saw that something was amiss. He opened the door and swung himself into the carriage. Dio mio! I heard him exclaim as I actually flung myself into his arms and pointed to the body now lying in a huddled heap amid its own blood on the floor. Then, for the first time in my life, I positively swooned away and knew no more. When I came to myself, the train had stopped at a small station, the name of which I do not know to this day. There was a babble of speech going on around, not one word of which I could understand. I was on the platform supported between two men in uniform with cocked hats and cockades. In vain, I tried to tell my story. I knew little or no Italian, and though there were one or two Frenchmen in the train, they were useless as interpreters, for on the one hand my power of speaking French seemed to have departed in my agitation, and on the other hand none of the Italians understood it. In vain I tried to make them understand that a Giovanni had travelled in the compartment with us who had now disappeared. The Italian guard who had come on at Ventimiglia evidently had no recollection of him. He merely shook his head, said, non capsico and inquired if i was prussiano the train had already been delayed some time and after a consultation between the station master the guard the syndic of the village who had been summoned in haste it was determined to hand the matter over to the authorities at genoa the two carabinieri sat one on each side of me facing the engine and on the opposite seat the body was stretched out with a luggage tarpaulin over it. In this hideous fashion, I passed the four or five remaining hours of the journey to Genoa. The next week I spent in an Italian prison, a very uncomfortable yet quite unromantic place of abode. Fortunately, my friends were by this time in Genoa and they succeeded in obtaining some slight mitigation of my discomforts. At the end of the time I was released, there being no evidence against me. The testimony of the French guard, of the booking clerk at Monaco, and of the staff of the Hotel de Paris established the existence of my fascinating friend, which was at first called in question. But no trace could be found of him. With him had disappeared his victim's dispatch box, in which were stored the proceeds of several days of successful gambling. Robbery, however, did not seem to have been the primary motive of the crime, for his watch, purse, and the heavy jewellery about his person were all untouched. From the German consul at Genoa, I learned privately after my release that the murdered man, though in fact a Prussian, had lived long in Russia and was suspected of having had an unofficial connection with the St. Petersburg police. It was thought indeed that the capital with which he had commenced his operation at Monte Carlo was the reward of some special act of treachery, so that the anarchists, if it was indeed they who struck the blow, had merely suffered Judas to put his thirty pieces out to usance in order to pay back to their enemies with interest the blood money of their friends.
About two years later, I happened one day to make an afternoon call in Mayfair at the house of a lady well known in the social and political world, who honours me, if I may say so, with her friendship. Her drawing room was crowded and the cheerful ring of afternoon teacups was audible through the pleasant medley of women's voices. I joined a group around the hostess where an animated discussion was in progress on the Irish Coercion Bill, then the leading political topic of the day. The argument interested me deeply, but it is one of my mental peculiarities that when several conversations are going on around me, I can by no means keep my attention exclusively fixed upon the one in which I am myself engaged. Odds and ends from all the others find their way into my ears and my consciousness, and I am sometimes accused of absence of mind, when my fault is in reality a too great alertness of the sense of hearing. In this instance, the conversation of three or four groups was more or less audible to me, but it was not long before my attention was absorbed by the voice of a lady, seated at the other side of the circular ottoman on which I myself had taken my place. She was talking merrily and her hearers in one of whom, as I glanced over my shoulder, I recognised an ex-cabinet minister, seemed to be greatly entertained. As her back was towards me, all I could see of the lady herself was her short black hair falling over the handsome fur collar of her mantle. He was so tragic about it, she was saying, that it was really impayable. The lady was beautiful, wealthy, accomplished, and I don't know what else. The rival was an Australian squatter with a beard as thick as his native bush. My communicative friend, I scarcely knew even his name when he poured forth his woes to me, thought that he had an advantage in his light moustache with a military twirl in it. They were all three travelling in Switzerland, but the Australian had gone off to make the ascent of some peak or other, leaving the field to the fore for a couple of days at least. On the first day, the four made the most of his time and had nearly brought matters to a crisis. The next morning, he got himself up as exquisitely as possible in order to clinch his conquest, but found to his disgust that he had left his dressing case with his razors at the last stopping place. There was nothing for it but to try the village barber who was also the village stationer and draper and ironmonger and chemist a sort of alpine witly, in fact. His face had just been soaked, what do you call it? Lathered, is it not? And the barber had actually taken hold of his nose so as to get his head into the right position, when, in the mirror opposite, he saw the door open, and, oh horror, who should walk into the shop but the fair one herself? He gave such a start that the barber gashed his chin, his eyes met hers in the mirror. For a moment, he saw her lips quiver and tremble and then she burst into shrieks of uncontrollable laughter and rushed out of the shop. If you knew the pompous little man, I'm sure you would sympathize with her. I know I did when he told me the story. His heart sank within him, but he acted like a Briton. He determined to take no notice of the contretemps but returned boldly to the attack. She received him demurely at first, but the moment she raised her eyes to his face and saw the patch of sticking plaster on his chin, 
she was again seized with such convulsions that she had to rush from the room. She is now in Melbourne, he said, almost with a sob. And I assure you, my dear friend, that I never now touch a razor without an impulse to which I expect I shall one day succumb, to put it to a desperate use. There was a singing in my ears and my brain was whirling. This story, heartlessly and irreverently told, was the tragedy of my life. I had breathed it to no human soul, save one. I rose from my seat, wondering within myself whether my agitation was visible to those around me and went over to the other side of the room whence I could obtain a view of the speaker. There were the deep, dark eyes, there were the full sensuous lips, the upper shaded with an impalpable down, there was the charcoal black hair, I knew too well, that rich contralto voice, it was my fascinating friend. Before I had fully realized the situation, she rose, handed her empty teacup to the cabinet minister, bowed to him and his companion and made her way up to the hostess, evidently intending to take her leave. As she turned away after shaking hands cordially with Lady X, her eyes met mine intently fixed upon her. She did not start. She neither flushed nor turned pale. She simply raised for an instant her finely arched eyebrows, and as her tall figure sailed past me out of the room, she turned upon me the same exquisite and irresistible smile with which my fascinating friend had offered me his cigarette case that evening among the olive trees. I hurried up to Lady X. Who is the lady who has just left the room? I asked. Oh, that is the Baroness M, she replied. She is half an Englishwoman, half a Pole. She was my daughter's bosom friend at Girton, a most interesting girl. Is she a politician? I asked. No, that's the one thing I don't like about her. She is not a bit of a patriot. She makes a joke of her country's wrongs and sufferings. Should you like to meet her? Dine with us the day after tomorrow. She is to be here. I dined at Lady X's on the appointed day, but the Baroness was not there. Urgent family affairs had called her suddenly to Poland. A week later, the assassination of the Tsar sent a thrill of horror through the civilized world. Don't you think your friend might be held an accessory after the fact to the death of the German? asked the novelist, when all the flattering comments, which were many, were at an end. And an accessory before the fact to the assassination of the Tsar, chimed in the editor. Why didn't he go straight from Lady's house to the nearest police station and put the police on the track of his fascinating friend? What a question, the romancer exclaimed, starting from a seat and pacing restlessly about the deck. How could any man with a palate for the rarest flavors of life resist the temptation of taking that woman down to dinner? And besides, hadn't he eaten salt with her? Hadn't he smoked the social cigarette with her? Shade of De Quincey, are we to treat like a vulgar criminal, a mistress of the finest of the fine arts? Shall we be such crawling creatures as to seek to lay by the heels a muse of murder? Are we a generation of detectives that we should do this thing? So my friend put it to me, said the critic dryly not quite so eloquently, but to that effect. 
Between ourselves, though, I believe he was influenced more by consideration of his personal safety than by admiration for murder as a fine art. He remembered the fate of the German and was unwilling to share it. He adopted a policy of non-intervention, said the eminent tragedian, who in his hours of leisure was something of a politician. I should rather say of Lise's fair, or more precisely of Lise's assassinar, laughed the editor. What was the fascinating friend supposed to have in her portmanteau? asked Beatrice. What was she so anxious to conceal from the custom house officers? Her woman's clothes, I imagine, the critic replied. Though I don't hold myself bound to explain all the ins and outs of her proceedings. Then she was a wonderful woman, replied the fair questioner, as one having authority. If she could get a respectable gown and fixings, as the Americans say, into a small portmanteau. But, she added, I very soon suspected she was a woman. Why? asked several voices simultaneously. Why? Because she drew him out so easily, was the reply. You think, in fact, said the romancer, that however little its victim was aware of it, there was a touch of the avish vibration in her fascination? Precisely, 